Greetings. Today we'll be covering Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Uh, we'll be doing this uh, through um, reading of texts, which is going to be on the screen, um, you know, really through listening to my exposition of these texts and uh, seeing a visual representation of what would have been common uh, to the Philippian church and, you know, really the, the Roman era during that time. Um, the book of Philippians uh, is one of the most uh, beloved books of the New Testament by many. You know, the sheer amount of theological, uh, devotional, and inspirational material that it contains uh, really deserves and would require its own dedicated study. Even the short section that we're covering today, uh, it has elicited volumes of scholarly study and debate. Uh, while at one level, reading and understanding the epistle of the Philippians uh, is very simple and straightforward, it at the same time can be very intricate and nuanced. Paul's messages of unity, thanksgiving, selfishness, and joy is apparent throughout the entire epistle. But all of this is undergirded by one of the most profound and complex expositions of Jesus' deity and humanity found in Scripture. Here in uh, 2, 5 through 11, uh, Paul is giving us the prime example and ultimate expression of what real and perfect humanness and godliness is. Uh, he's also giving us a, uh, a glimpse into what the kingdom if, of heaven is like, uh, really in contrast to the current kingdom that they're living in uh, during their time. So in today's discussion, we will look at this passage as it relates to its immediate context, its continuity within the letter as a whole, uh, and its setting in the Philippian church and the Greco-Roman world in which it was written. We will examine two comparable but opposing sets of ideas as they relate to position, privilege, and purpose. Uh, these sets of ideas are dominance versus servanthood, subjugation versus sacrifice, uh, and exaltation versus salvation. It is my hope and prayer that at the end of this discussion, we will be able to better understand and embody the same mind of Christ to which Paul is leading us to. So getting right into the passage. Uh, chapter 2, verse 5 says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. What attitude exactly is Paul referring to? Well, he covers this attitude in verses 2 through 4, which say, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So the attitude in verse 5 that Paul is instructing them to have is a unity of mind, love, and purpose, absent of selfishness or conceit, and to view other people in the church and their needs as more important than one's own. So really, the instruction and direction, you know, the to-dos that Paul is giving us in 5 through 11 come from uh, verses two through four. But with that understanding, Paul continues and gives the Philippian church the ultimate expression example of this. Uh, that is the example of Jesus Christ, where Paul continues and says that uh, Jesus Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this confession, you know, the so-called hymn, Paul not only shows Christ's example, but also the authority and power to make this happen, to, either, to enact what Paul is, is instructing them to do. Paul rounds out this section with verses 12 and 13 uh, and says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, uh, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul is saying here that they should work out their salvation with a seriousness appropriate to those who look forward to salvation really on that final day. A seriousness in applying his instruction, but not forgetting that at all times, uh, it is not them to initiate or complete this, but it is God's from start to finish. So to quickly summarize, Paul is exhorting the believers in Philippi to have a unity of mind, love, and purpose, absent of selfishness or conceit, to view other believers within the congregation and their needs as more important than one's own, and they are to do this both because of and by the power of their exalted King and God, Jesus Christ. This is the obedience to willingly sacrifice, even unto death, for the sake of others. So to look at the expanded context within the letter itself, or the continuity within it, uh, just a few examples. Uh, in Philippians 1, 27 to 30, Paul gives uh, and speaks of their unity together uh, as a church and in, in everything that he's going through. In 2, 25 to 30, uh, he gives a stark example of Epaphroditus, uh, his, bro his brother, his fellow worker and fellow soldier, a key term uh, for the Philippians. Um, who was uh, there, uh, so Epaphroditus, who was uh, the church's messenger to Paul's needs. For Epaphroditus was uh, sick to the point of death, uh, sacrificing himself, coming to close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life uh, to complete what was deficient in the Philippians church's service to Paul. Uh, Paul continues, and he gives the example of, um, you know, laying down an exalted status. He gives himself as, an, as, as this example in 3, 4 through 11 where he talks about um, him being the Hebrew of Hebrews, uh, his exalted status as a Pharisee, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, uh, a Pharisee, um, a persecutor of the church, and really uh, righteousness, which is in the law, he was found blameless. But like with Christ, uh, just as Jesus laid down his exalted status in obedience, so too did Paul. Um, and really sort of as a culmination of all of this, um, in chapter four, at the beginning of chapter four, Paul uh, pleads Yodia uh, and Syntyche really to come together. All of this that uh, previously happened, that all, Paul, all that Paul explained, all of these sections, he brings it together really as a strong impetus to uh, those two to get along in the church. So as we look at this, you know, we, we think that, you know, the message, you know, at first glance is simple and to the point. Uh, but there is an underlying contradiction, uh, a very impactful one that um, many modern readers, especially within the Western church, may not readily see or appreciate. You know, and this brings us back to uh, this idea of position, privilege and purpose, you know, and really the, the contrasting ideas between them. 
So to help us gain a little more insight on how impactful this would have been to the Philippians hearing this, let us take a closer look at the background and setting of their church. Philippi was already a very old and historic city when Paul arrived. During the conquest of uh, Philip II of Macedon, who coincidentally was Alexander the Great's father, the ancient Thracian or possibly Thassian city of Crenides was taken in 358 or 57 BC. Philip wanted it for its strategic location leading into Thrace and for the silver and gold located nearby. He fortified it and named it after himself. So again, this idea of dominance, subjugation, and exaltation is even with the, the naming of the city. We have here Philip coming in, taking the city by force, subjugating and fortifying it with a garrison there, and really exalting himself by naming the city right after you know, uh, himself who conquered it. Later, Philippi became part of the Roman Empire and was made one of the stations along the main overland route connecting Rome with the east. It was an important city for, for Rome. Uh, Philippi was under Greek rule until it became a Roman colony at around the time uh, when Mark Anthony and Octavian defeated uh, the forces of Brutus and Cassius, uh, though, uh, the assassins of Julius Caesar uh, there at Philippi in 42 BC. Uh, so they defeated him there at, you know, at Philippi, just right around the city. Um, a large number of Philippians were descended from the soldiers who settled in the city after the battle. Uh, Others, many of them soldiers, settled in the city again slightly less than a decade later when Octavian, during a Roman civil war, was victorious over Mark Anthony. Uh, as a result, the um, city proudly maintained a strong Roman character. Its architecture and administration appeared to have been modeled after uh, Rome's um, and worship of the emperor uh, was an important element in the religious life, life of the city. Being a good Roman city, the main forum or marketplace in Philippi would have had a statue of Julius Caesar and Augustus. And this was not just reserved to the Romans. Uh, even Philip II had a shrine dedicated to him in Philippi. Taking this a step further, a uh, professor, Catherine Shainer, argues that to better understand the impact and language of Philippians 2, 5 through 11, cues from the Greco-Roman visual culture and visual rhetoric should not only be taken into account, but also weighed heavily. Along with shrines, temples, and statues used for worship or cultic activities, first century CE images of Roman imperial figures subduing foreign sexualized women were installed throughout the civic spaces of the empire as a celebration of victory over the nations. She points out to well-known series of reliefs on the Sebastian in the in Aphrodisias uh, as one of uh, as just one example. Images like these uh, found there dominated the visual fields of ancient people, working to persuade viewers of certain ideals about power, beauty, and authority. She says, reading the Christ hymn in conversation with the visual rhetoric of the Aphrodisian reliefs and other images like them throughout imperial cities significantly shifts the interpretive framework for the passage. There's a lot more that she covers. Uh, she, there's a lot more that, you know, that can be presented here. But really, uh, her findings help to illustrate really the present ethos of the Philippian church. You know, these stark images and visual rhetoric, tradition, and history of, uh, of conquest 
would have been deeply embedded within the culture and psyche of the people of Philippi. People who descended from those citizen soldiers who knew well what it meant to follow an all-powerful ruler. You know, it is fair to say that most, if not all of them, were citizens of Rome and thus understood the rights, privileges, and responsibilities that came with that citizenship. They would have understood well what dominance, subjugation, and exaltation meant, what someone in power could do and often did do as a show of that power. Rome was a nation built on power and on the conquest and subjugation of others. Its deified rulers were examples of this. Might is right, and those who show this power through conquest and subjugation will be exalted to the highest of places. So to Romans in general, and the Philippians in particular, a king does not yield to anyone. A king never relinquishes his rights or and position, and he exerts his will and forces others to bend the knee and serve him. A king exalts uh, himself by might and through the building of shrines and monuments makes himself immortal and eternal. So let's look at the contrast now. We have Caesar uh, with uh, might, dominant subjugation and exaltation. And instead we have the new kingdom, the one that Paul is exhorting them and reminding them that they're a part of, which is Jesus. Jesus' example uh, as king and God uh, is one of servanthood and sacrifice, which led to and ultimately is the way to salvation. So with these images in mind and with this contrast in mind, let's reread our passages, uh, verses five through eight. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the complete opposite of the Roman emperors and common notions of deity. While they, the emperors, as mere men, strove to attain godship by means of dominance, violence, and subjugation, we have Jesus, who actually is God, choosing to empty himself of everything, his exalted position and everything that came with it, and to instead take on the lowest form of that of a slave. While the Caesars tried to make themselves immortal, immune to death, Jesus instead obediently succumbed to it, even the worst form of it. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here is the paradox. Those who grasp at Godship will now bow to the servant of all. This is God eternal, self-emptying, sacrificial, and saving. Through his acts of servanthood and sacrifice, we have our salvation. The Philippian hymn clearly rejects 
notions that conquest, imperial military victory, and subjugation are indicators of divine power. Instead, divine aspirations are found in servanthood, in unity of mind, love, and purpose, absent of selfishness or conceit, to view others, uh, to view other believers especially, and their needs as more important than one's own. And this is done both because of and by the power of their exalted King and God, Jesus Christ. Having this obedience to willingly sacrifice, even unto death for the sake of others. The people of Philippi were proud of their city, proud of their ties with Rome, proud, of, proud to observe Roman customs and obey Roman laws. They, in effect, were really proud to be uh, Roman citizens. Um, Paul, throughout his letter, uh, uses various words and phrases to help to remind them. And these are little literal words that, that in, say citizenship and freemen. Uh, and he uses them throughout the letter to remind them and to implore them that, you know, you understand what it means to be a citizen of Rome. So now please understand what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of Christ what it means, how different, how contrastingly polar opposite it is from what you currently know. So by, you know, by choosing these words and these expression, you know, he's drawing on their commitment and understanding of what it means. Uh, but now he's directing them uh, to instead remind them that they are part of a new uh, kingdom and they belong to that new kingdom and they are to embody uh, the same principles uh, that their uh, Lord and Savior does. You know, this clearly applies to us as well. You know, as you know, this is the way of the king, so too it is the way of the kingdom. You know, how do we have unity of mind, love, and purpose, absent of selfishness or conceit, and uh, how do we view other people in church and their needs as more important than our own? Now, I'm going to end here really with this, uh, this one image. This was taken from, uh, this is a, a snapshot from uh, you know, the Passion of the Christ and the crucifixion scene. And, you know, in looking at this, um, we can see a sort of a snapshot of this message in, in Philippians 2, 5 through 11 and in the, you know, uh, Philippian church as well. So I don't know if you can see, you know, uh, kind of towards the right of the center cross where Jesus is, uh, there is both the Jewish leadership and also Romans there, right in this corner here. You know, we have, um, you know, the leadership, uh, you know, Pharisees, uh, most likely. And uh, we have, you know, the Roman centurion, the Roman soldiers there. So this, you know, as a visual representation of the story really makes it out. Here we have, uh, you know, them below that of our exalted Christ. So as we close, we'll close on this image and let us pray. Heavenly Father, we worship you and we thank you for uh, this example of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Lord, to be sacrificial, to be selfless uh, in, in our pursuits, Lord, and to look out for really the needs uh, of others and to place them above our own. Lord, we pray to embody this in ourselves. Lord, we pray that you transform us more into your likeness, uh, Lord, in this, in this way. Uh, we ask this, Lord, 
really as this is the desire of our hearts. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>